Good morning. We're going to get started. I'm going to have Mark introduce our guest in just a moment. When we were talking through uh, the forum for this fall, one of the topics we really wanted to touch on was healthcare. We know that healthcare is something that is being debated on the national stage, uh, the best way to provide it. Uh, it's being debated nationally, it's being debated locally. There are folks that are working uh, on a Medicaid petition right now in Missouri. And, uh, and we wanted to take a moment this uh, here at Holy Communion to talk about ways that people of faith can be involved in questions of healthcare. Uh, and so I'm going to work on getting the computer back up, and I'm going to let Mark introduce Jenny. Thanks so much, Mike. Uh, today we are pleased to have with us the Executive Director of Ethics for the Mercy Health System, Dr. Jennifer Heil. Uh, Jenny is well known in St. Louis circles and nationally, uh, has spoken and taught not only at St. Louis University, but at several colleges across the country. And perhaps most important for our purposes today, she brings a sense of what really does happen, uh, not just to people who are poor, not just to folks who are homeless, not just to folks who find themselves on the margins of society, but to people who live everyday lives and try and access the healthcare that's so vitally important to their lives and to their futures. Jenny has a PhD from the University of Tennessee, and despite the fact that that's an SEC rival of mine, our beloved Missouri Tigers, uh, we still love Jenny immensely and are deeply pleased to have her with us to talk not only about issues of healthcare generally, but about the response of the Mercy Health System, one of the nation's preeminent service organizations, uh, and their approach to the care of people. Dr. Jenny Heil. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I really appreciate uh, the invitation. I did try to defer the invitation because I feel like this topic, the broader topic of um, Medicaid and the expansion, is well out of my wheelhouse. Mark um, convinced me that that's his wheelhouse, and what I can bring to this discussion is more of the nuts and bolts of what happens um, in the hospital. And I do have to do another disclaimer at this point, that the 17 years that I've been with Mercy until this past summer, my position has been in the hospital um, and often dealing with the most difficult cases at the end of life. But people don't get to those very difficult cases at the end of life without having lived a life um, that has lots of potholes in the road. And so I've seen it for, as Mark mentioned, for folks who have good health care, the very difficult, the difficulty of navigating the healthcare system. Uh, those of us who work at Mercy, sometimes we say to each other, this is difficult for us to navigate the system. What is it like for someone who is outside the healthcare arena uh, and somebody who doesn't have the health literacy that we believe that we have? Uh, and so what I want to do is go through a couple slides. And you might recognize some of these images 
And so what I lay this out is when I am often the one to get involved, when they call ethics. Um, so Robert's, Robert is 62 years old. He's currently in the ICU following a stroke. His medical history is significant for hypertension and diabetes. 
His kidneys were damaged from uncontrolled diabetes, and by the age of 58, he progressed to end-stage renal disease, at which point he became eligible for Medicare. And then he began to undergo dialysis treatment three times a week. But prior to qualifying for Medicare, Robert was part of the working poor, holding down two jobs, neither of which offered health insurance. The only independent insurance plan he could afford had extremely high deductibles. Robert resorted to the emergency room for most of his health care. Paying for his insulin was a constant struggle. Now, after four years of dialysis three times a week and finally having regular access to health care, which has helped him control his hypertension and diabetes, he has suffered a devastating stroke. His wife is heartbroken, and her anger is evident when she says, Robert has been denied access to care he's needed most of his life. Now you will do everything you can to save him. Those of us who see these kind of cases in the hospital um, can't help but recognize about how upside down this is. Because the care that he's receiving in this ICU and the amount of money that's being spent on that care in the ICU, most of us believe could have been spent much better in helping this gentleman control his hypertension and diabetes. And I think there are lots of barriers to why people's hypertension and diabetes are not controlled. Uh, but one of them clearly is access to health care. Uh, and so now we're dealing with lots of human emotions here. We have a patient, and you know, just to play this out a little more, he's probably not going to survive this stroke. If he does survive, it will be in a very diminished capacity, probably in a nursing home, um, on a feeding tube, with may or may not have any cognitive abilities. So if we do everything we can do, and we ex continue to provide that, um, he probably does not have a life that had been able to talk about it beforehand or had talked about it that he would probably want to live. And yet his wife understandably is angry because now he's only 62 and look where he is. Now you're going to do everything you can. So how do we minister to her um, as well as the patient, keeping the patient's best interest apart or figuring out what he would have wanted if he could tell us at this point. Uh, so I, I think this just kind of sets the stage. We don't want to go to questions right now, do we? The table for questions. And, and then the second uh, case, this just takes it a little bit farther. And, and certainly beyond what we're talking about today with Medicaid, Medicaid expansion in Missouri. Uh, but this just points out one of the other issues that we often have to deal with. And so Roberto, his health history is pretty similar to Robert's. But he's only 32 years old. Um, he's an undocumented worker. It was, and I'm embarrassed to say, it was a learning for me that the, undoc the undocumented workers in this country pay taxes. You know, they are getting taxes taken out of their paycheck. You know, unless it's somebody who's being paid in cash, but uh, most of the undocumented workers are getting paychecks and having taxes withdrawn. They're also not filing uh, income tax returns at the end of the year to get a refund. So, uh, you know, just to put that out there. He's an undocumented worker, and when his kid kidney damage pro 
progresses to end-stage renal disease. And I, I've included that in there because whenever somebody has kidney damage that progresses to end-stage renal, you automatically become eligible for Medicare. Back in the old days, I guess it was in the 60s and 70s when dialysis was available, but it was a scarce resource, there were actually committees who got to decide who was eligible for dialysis. And often these decisions were made on the person's social standing in the community. So someone who was, uh, you know, wealthy, contributed to the community, had a family, he might be approved for dialysis where someone who was on welfare or unemployed would not be. And so I, I think the United States made a good uh, decision at that point to say, look, when somebody gets to this point, we will provide support for that care that they need to live. Uh, but probably what's interesting about Roberto's case is if he had been a United States citizen at the age of 32 with kidney, kidneys that damaged, he probably would qualify to be on a transplant list. And so Roberto right now, not only can he not get dialysis, he cannot get it. He's not eligible for a kidney transplant. His options are not good. If he goes back to Mexico, his home country, it, it's not certain that he can even get dialysis there, much less a transplant. Um, so his options are either find a dialysis center that will give him a charity care, and the dialysis centers I think do it, try to help these folks, but they can only take a limited number. The number that they can accept far exceeds the people who have the need for it. His other, Roberto's other um, option is to wait till he gets really sick and go to the emergency room. And because of, you might have heard of MTALA laws, if somebody comes to the emergency room, they cannot be denied care. So he can get dialysis through that route. Um, or he can actually just change his goals of treatment and opt for comfort care, uh, realizing that if he's an end-stage renal disease and does not get dialysis, he will die in a rather short period of time, weeks to months, depending on time. So I think at this point, um, before I take a lot of questions, I'll turn this over to Mark. Congress, under the leadership of 
likewise for those who were poor. Over the years, that program, both programs have served this nation incredibly well. In fact, it's interesting to know that prior to the advent of Medicare, two-thirds of all people over the age of 65, two-thirds of people over the age of 65 lived below the federal poverty level. And the reason for that is because they were spending their money on health care. So the ability of people to retire, to move to Florida, to enjoy their grandchildren, is in no small measure because of the society's recognition of the importance of providing health care services. The question then for us, and I think Jenny's uh, case study, especially regarding Roberto raised, what do we do for those who don't have access to the vital mechanical device of insurance that allows them to gain access to life-saving health care? and designed to provide exactly that kind of support for families who were falling through the cracks, people who lived their lives in the so-called healthcare donut hole. It was challenged in court, but the individual mandate was upheld by the Supreme Court two years later, saying, in fact, Congress had the right to demand that every person in this country be responsible and pursue coverage either through their employer, through private insurance, or through a program like the Affordable Care Act. The state mandate was extended to Medicaid to individuals whose incomes were less than 138% of the federal poverty level, but that was held unconstitutional. So, in the original Affordable Care Act, the federal government mandated that all 50 states and the District of Columbia make employers and employees as well as individuals responsible for pursuing health care. That mandate was overruled. Therefore, states are now free to determine the extent to which they offer expanded or enhanced Medicaid programs. To no one's surprise, Missouri was not on the cutting edge of moving forward. Shortly after State of Missouri that included healthcare, civic, social welfare, religious, and business groups to advocate for Medicaid expansion in Missouri. To take a program that most believed had worked exceptionally well and broaden its reach across the entire state. It was actively supported by Governor Jane Nixon and the Democratic legislative minority, uh, but was consistently opposed by subsequent Republican governors and the Republican majority in the General Assembly. And currently, as Mike mentioned, there's an initiative petition circulating among voters throughout the state to bring this issue to the forefront, to allow you and I to decide whether or not we're going to make this kind of life-saving health insurance coverage available to the most vulnerable among us. Medicaid, as I mentioned, is the safety net for those people who are economically disenfranchised. It's a federal partnership with the states, that is, states and the federal government come together under a set of federally defined criteria, but with some flexibility, to provide medical services for low-income families 
and the so-called categorically eligible, the elderly, the disabled, and blind, as well as pregnant women. State programs are designed by them and managed under federal guidance. Currently, over 65 million people in the United States are recipients of Medicaid. In Missouri, almost 800,000 people are Medicaid recipients. Much to, I think, most people's surprise, they are overwhelmingly white, don't reside in urban communities, but rather reside in rural Missouri, and virtually all of them work, but they work at low-wage jobs where they have no access to health insurance, or if they did, they couldn't afford to purchase it. Just as an example, 22% of the people in the Boot Hill are on Medicaid. 18% of the people around Hannibal receive Medicaid much higher percentages than either in metropolitan St. Louis or Kansas City. And sadly, 9% of the elderly, despite their access to Medicaid, also receive Medicaid benefits, primarily through nursing home services. Point being, Medicaid is a substantial issue in the state of Missouri. It benefits almost one-sixth of our entire population. So how can we address this? Why is this so important? And here's going to be a bit of stunning revelation, I think, for all of us who, as Jenny mentioned a moment ago, think of hospitals as these mammoth organizations bringing down incredible profits. Let me share with you a story. In the 1980s, hospital leaders across the state of Missouri were concerned that people who were poor were not having their needs met by the traditional Medicaid program enacted in the mid-60s. So under the auspices of the Missouri Hospital Association, they got together and agreed among themselves, voluntarily, no pressure from the state, to institute a self-imposed tax. And to take that tax, give it free with no strings attached to the state of Missouri, so that the state of Missouri could take $1 million in its own funds, for example, add another million of hospital funds, and instead of getting federal match for the one million of state funds, get federal match for two million. Now, if this sounds like a shell game, it is, but it was deemed to be illegal. Federal reimbursement allowance, otherwise known in Missouri as the FRA, was adopted in 1992 and consistently authorized. What it did was to enforce through statute the structure of this program mandate that hospitals participate in it, as well as to a lesser extent nursing homes and pharmacies. It is today the third largest source of revenue in the state of Missouri. So when people suggest that the health care of the poor is being borne on the backs of Missouri taxpayers, no. So you'll see in just a moment, less than 15%, excuse me, less than 16% of the cost of Missouri ranked 47th or 48th in its 
after the 1992 implementation and up until the Governor Blunt's cuts in 2005, Missouri was consistently in the top 10 in our health care for the poor. What was the difference? The voluntary tax. In fact, the citizens of the state and their hospitals came together to support a vitally important resource. Because of the state's, uh, because of the FRA, share of funding decreased from almost 40% prior to the enactment to just less than 60%. So a huge contribution, freeing up millions of state dollars to be allocated to other activities, to education, to roads, conservation. What about the proposed Medicaid expansion? Why is this so critically important? This is going to be shocking to a number of people. Currently, Missouri covers families with household incomes only up to less than 18% of the federal poverty level. So if you're a family of three and you make $3,741 a year, $3,741 a year, you are ineligible for Medicaid in the state of Missouri. Childless adults who are not pregnant, elderly, or disabled are not covered at all. Expansion would provide coverage for individual incomes up to 138% of the federal poverty level, which is uh, almost $17,000 in Missouri, and would embrace another 315,000 individuals. What's the consequence of not doing this? <coughs> the loss of over 700 lives per year simply because people did not have access to health insurance. What happens when we don't have access to the vehicle that makes health care happen in this country? You see poor academic performance, people are less healthy, they're sick more often, their attendance and productivity is decreased, and when they do get sick, it's much more costly to treat them because they're entering our hospitals at the later stages of their illness and consuming an important number of resources. It is the worst kind of
what information about Missouri's Medicaid program surprised you? Has this information affected your perspective on the need for Medicaid expansion? And then finally, as the 2020 election cycle begins to take shape, what are your hopes for health care reform and 